Well, good morning. Steve was uh, introducing this sermon series a couple weeks ago, and uh, he mentioned that the graphic was inspired by the board game Settlers of Catan, uh, which uh, it's only Catan now, that's don't call it that anymore, but anyway, uh, Settlers of Catan. He said he didn't really play the game, and so it wouldn't come up again in the series. And, uh, and what Steve doesn't know is I do play this game. Uh, I've played this game three times in the last week, um, and I don't want to brag, but I've won all three. So um, <laughs> I play the game. I enjoy the game. I, I played it uh, twice just this last weekend at the Deeper Life Retreat with our student ministry. And during one of those games, I noticed something that I found really interesting. Uh, there, there's a part of this game, Catan, there's uh, cards that you can uh, purchase with your resources to, to try to build the largest army. Uh, there's knights that you can buy. And, and I, I noticed, I, I bought a, a card that had a knight on it and I looked really closely at it and I realized that I think there's something that Steve has been holding out on us. He's just not telling us. I brought a picture of the card. Um, it's Steve. Steve is the, the Catan knight. Um, so, so at some point in, in Steve's professional career, he, he mo- did some modeling, some board game modeling, and sat for a picture. Um, and uh, so may- maybe that's why he doesn't like to play the game. He, maybe because he's part of the game, he doesn't play the game. Um, I do know, I don't, I don't know exactly how this came to be. I do know that Steve looks mighty fine on a horse, is, is, is what I learned from that card. So the object of the, the game, the object of Catan is to be the first to reach 10 points. That's how you win. Uh, and you get points by building settlements or cities or uh, the longest road or the largest army. Uh, all those things will get you points. You can get to 10 points. And it's easy to get focused uh, on something uh, other than the overall object, right? You're trying to get to 10 points to win, but you get focused on this one thing that you're trying to do. I'm trying to build this really long road. And so you just really get into collecting the resources and building the road. Um, and, and doing that is fun but it won't result in you winning. It just, you know, congratulations on your two points for the longest road, but that doesn't get you 10, right? And, and, and so we get focused, or some people get focused on collecting a certain resource. Like they want to be the king of the sheep and just have all of the sheep. Well, I mean, that's great and all, but if you don't use your resources to actually build something, you're not going to win the game. You're not going to get any points. Um, you're just going to have a lot of sheep. So, uh, that, and that's kind of the idea, right? That's the, the idea of this whole series um, that we settle for something that's less than the object of the game. We settle for something that's not going to win us the game. We settle for something that, that is just going to like, you know, engage us in this one thing over here. And I guess it might be good, but it's not actually the object. It's not what we're trying to do. Uh, and then we, it, when we do it, we miss out. We miss out on the abundant life that God wants to give us. And so today, we're going to look at Romans chapter 1 and see what happens when we settle for focusing on created things rather than worshiping the creator of those things. And that the Bible term for it is idolatry. And it's like playing Catan and settling for less than the object of the game. Being content to collect just like tons and tons of bricks in order to build a really long road uh, rather than using all the different resources to try to help you win the game. Um, we settle and then we don't win. So let's dive right in. We're going to go into Romans chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start here in verse 18. Romans 1.18 is where we're going to start. The wrath of God exactly what you always want to hear in church when we're starting, right? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen 
being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations uh, for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents, which always seemed a little out of place to me. Like, all these terrible things. Like, and you disobey your parents. Um, but I'm a parent now, so go God, right? Uh, they disobey their parents, I'm lost in the list now. There we go. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. So first of all, I want to thank Steve for giving me such an easy, non-controversial passage to handle today. Um, that's amazing. That's, that's great. You know, very nice of him. But the joke's on him, though, because I get to preach this and then peace out for sabbatical. So if you have any questions or comments, uh, that's H-I-G-G-S, two G's in, in his email address. You can send them all on to Steve. Uh, I'll <laughs> be away. This is one of those passages, right, that we kind of wish wasn't in the Bible at all. We kind of wish God hadn't put this in here. Um, it would be easier for everybody if this just wasn't here. We didn't have to deal with this. Um, but since, it's, since it is here, since it is in the Bible, uh, we do have to deal with it. We are, uh, if nothing else, we are people of the book. Uh, we, we, we study scripture uh, and we submit our lives to scripture. And so uh, we're going to study the scripture in Romans chapter 1. So it starts off with everybody's favorite topic, the wrath of God. Uh, we love talking about that and, and, and thinking about it and, and reminiscing about God's wrath and the way that it's, it's shown in our lives. Apparently, uh, that's something that, uh, that isn't just confined to the Old Testament. Uh, we talk a lot about how, you know, the God of the Old Testament uh, was his God of wrath and he did these things uh, to, yeah, you know, to, to, to deal with sin. Uh, but then we get to the New Testament and he's a God of love and a God of grace. Um, and and th those things are, are both true. Um, right? It, it, he's the God uh, of both Testaments. We like to think that God kind of chilled out as he got older, like, like a grandparent does, like they, that, that when they were younger, they were all like, you know, like venom and vinegar and like wild and crazy. And then like they get older and they start to like, like kind of chill out. And we think like God was like back in the day, he was always smiting people and stuff. But now he's just kind of laid back and like, Oh, like cool with whatever and, and just kind of like indulging our negative behaviors. But, uh, but that's not really the God of either Testament. God, God doesn't really uh, do that. 
God doesn't really just lay back and indulge our, our, our behaviors. He's, uh, he's holy and righteous. Uh, and uh, the, the God's character, God's nature uh, demands that, that he deals with sin. Uh, he, he doesn't, he can't just turn his back and, and, and be laid back and, and sin's no big deal. Uh, God's holy nature demands that, that he deals with sin, right? Um, and, and God's wrath, we get hung up on this, um, but God's wrath, it's not like our anger um, or, or, or even the, the, the anger of like the, the mythological gods that, you know, this book was written to the Romans and they would have been familiar with Roman mythology, I assume. And, and so the, you know, the anger of the gods of mythology that was uh, just vindictive and, and very selfish and egotistical and, and focused on getting revenge and, and God's wrath isn't, a, isn't like that. It's not about defending his own dignity or punishing us because we hurt his feelings or something like that. Uh, God's wrath is grounded in justice and it's based on his own perfect moral standard that he reveals to the world uh, and that he reveals in his word. It's not arbitrary. It's not unpredictable. It's not random. Like God is suddenly randomly like angry and mad. Like it's very predictable uh, when God's, how God's wrath is a response uh, to, to corruption in his good creation. See, God's the creator. And when, and when people, when his creation, uh, you know, bend and twist what he made, uh, it, it evokes a response of wrath. It's fairly predictable. And the other thing about God's wrath is that, that it's, it's earned. Uh, Romans 1 would certainly suggest that we, we deserve it. Uh, it. It's not some arbitrary, like where he's just, you know, your, your buddy that can't stop being angry all the time. Like our, God's wrath is earned. But I do want us to notice that in Romans 1, God's wrath is not directed at people. It's not directed at sinners. It says the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And I think that's an important distinction that God's wrath is aimed at our sin, not at us. See, Jesus' Jesus's life shows how much God loved people, how much God loved sinners. Jesus spent lots of time hanging out with individual sinners, people who sinned, people that society didn't want around them. Uh, Jesus would spend time with them. Jesus showed love and grace uh, to every sinner that he encountered. He didn't hate them. He didn't turn away from them. He didn't write them off. He spent time with them. So God does love sinners, but God does not love sin. And I know that's become this kind of trite, Christian-y thing that you hear people say that doesn't mean anything, right? Love the sinner, hate the sin. But that is legitimate how God deals with people. God loves people. God's wrath is directed against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress God's truth, right? And so that's an important distinction, that sin prompts a reaction from a holy God. And that's because we should know better. Romans 1, Paul's really clear, we should know better. We're not ignorant of the truth. We know the truth about God but we suppress the truth so we can live the way we want to live. You can only suppress something if you know about it first, right? You can't, if you don't know it, you're not, you don't know this thing, you're not suppressing it and ignoring it. You're just, you're just ignorant of it. You just don't know. Um, so you can only suppress the truth if you know the truth. And, and Paul explains we do. We do know the truth about God because God revealed himself to us, to all of us, to everybody, by placing some of his divine qualities in the world that he made. And not only that, but it says uh, God's qualities have been clearly seen and understood. That, that God revealed himself, God put something of himself into his creation, and throughout history, people have seen that and understood what it means. 
right? And theologians call this natural revelation, that God has revealed something of his existence, something of his nature to all the people in the created world, to to everybody. And not only that, but God made it plain to them that he's real. If only people will open their eyes and look around, and that leaves us without the excuse that we never knew, that we didn't know God, we didn't know anything about him. Because God's fingerprints are all over creation. He's the creator and he's left his fingerprints everywhere. And and through God's creation, we experience a little bit of what God is like. There's a reason that throughout history, people keep turning to religions or, or creating new religions even. Because on some level, we all know that there's something out there bigger than us. There's something out there that, that, that has influence over my life and over the things that happen to me. And throughout history, we've created all sorts of different ways to explain what it is. But regardless of what people throughout history have thought it is, we've all more or less agreed that there's something out there that's bigger than us. That's natural revelation. That God has put in his creation this natural revelation that there is a God out there. And it's just a starting point. Natural revelation, just a starting point. We can't know everything about what God is like by looking at creation. Just a little bit. Um, Paul points out we can know, we can know a couple of things. Uh, Paul's specific about a couple of things. In verse 20, uh, he says that we can see some of God's invisible qualities, uh, like his eternal power and his divine nature. So for me, that's, that's kind of like the idea that we can know that God's different than, than us. He, he's stronger than me. And, you know, my human nature is different than his divine nature. So we can see some of these invisible qualities that he's out there, he's stronger than me, he's bigger than me, uh, he can do more than I can. Um, I, I can know that about him just by looking at creation. That, that makes sense. And then in verse 32, at the very end of this passage, Paul says, we, we also know God's righteous decree that those who do such things, he just had a list of, of consequences of, of sinful behaviors, that those who do such things deserve death. That is, uh, we know that some things are wrong. We just do, right? We, we know that some things are wrong for people to do. We have this kind of internal sense of morality, this, uh, this sense of right and wrong, that some things, are, some things are right and some things are wrong. And listen, we don't always agree on what falls into which category, on, on which things are right for people and which things are wrong for people. If uh, you know, recent history has shown us anything, it's that we don't always agree on what things are right for people and what things are wrong for people. But, but, but that's not what Paul's saying, that we all know exactly what's right and wrong. He's saying we have this sense that there is right and there is wrong. And I don't know about you, but I've never really met anybody that, I mean, I, I've met people who say that, that they don't believe in, in, a, in, a, in a moral standard, but I've never met anyone that actually lives that way, right? That that there's no such thing as right and wrong and anybody can just do whatever they feel like. I don't know anybody that actually lives that way. Everybody has some idea that this thing is wrong. People shouldn't do that. Um, or this thing is right, that, that more people should do this. And, and we all kind of have this sense of right and wrong, this internal sense, right? Um, even our culture, when you look around our culture, I mean, certainly our culture sees certain things as like universally right and definitely sees some things as totally wrong. So even, even culture itself has this sense of right and wrong. That's a moral standard. And, and it, had, it has to come from somewhere. Um, if everyone just did whatever they wanted, if everyone just 
adhered to their own moral standard that they invented, um, there would be no agreement, no commonality on right and wrong. When there's agreement on, yeah, we all agree that's wrong. That had to come from somewhere that we all agree that it's wrong. Um, And so we all feel that right and wrong exist, that wrong behaviors should result in some sort of punishment or at least correction, that that we should encourage people to move in a different direction and away from their wrong behaviors. Um, Because natural revelation says we know just these basic things, right? these basic things about God, and we have a basic sense of right and wrong, just by looking around the world, just by looking at what God's made, we have this basic sense. And since we know these things, since we have this basic sense of who God is and what's right and wrong, Paul says we've got, we have no excuse when we suppress the truth and live like God doesn't exist. Because God has revealed himself and made himself plain to us, and if we pretend like that's not true, that's us suppressing the truth so that we can live however we want. God gave us knowledge of himself in his creation, but then we turned away from the knowledge that God gave us to, to, to live the way we want to live. And so instead of God, we choose, we choose to worship gods that we make ourselves. It's like Aaron uh, and the Israelites in the Old Testament. Remember Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God. Uh, and while he was on the mountain, uh, the people got all impatient and started throwing their jewelry in a furnace. Uh, and then when Moses came down, he's like, what happened? And Aaron's like, I don't know. We put our jewelry in and like out came this calf. Like, <laughs> how'd that happen, right? And, and so they fashioned, they fashioned this you know, God that they could worship that really was just about letting them do what they wanted, letting them live the way they wanted to live um, because God, you know, wouldn't do that, wouldn't let, the, let them live the way they want to live. And, and when we do that, when we refuse to glorify God and we refuse to give thanks to him, it affects our minds and it affects our desires. Romans says that our thinking becomes futile and our foolish hearts are darkened. Now I had to look up futile because I wanted to know specifically what it meant and also how I was supposed to pronounce it. Because for a little while there, I looked at it and I'm like, should I say futile? And then I'm like, no, I'm not British, futile. And, uh, and so here's what Webster says, incapable of producing any useful result. So their thinking became incapable of producing a useful result. Okay, I get that. That makes sense for Romans chapter, chapter one because these verses, these 10 verses from 21 to 31, uh, that's exactly what happens. Their their thinking turns in a way that they they just can't uh, be productive. They can't produce anything useful. And it repeats this pattern three times, that they exchanged exchanged something and then God gave them over. Uh, Three times we read that in Romans 1. and, And each time it's people putting their own God or their own sin in place of the truth that God revealed to them. And God reacts by handing them over to the consequences of their own choices. So in verse 22, they exchanged God's glory for images. Images made to look like uh, mortal man or made to look like animals for literal idols. Uh, they exchanged God's glory for images. This kind of is reminiscent of the Old Testament when they like built the statue, uh, like just talk about Aaron built the statue of this golden calf, this baby cow, and they worshiped it and we think, oh, those silly people. How could they do that? I would never do anything like that. And I hope that's true. I mean, I hope that you don't uh, have some shrine with a a statue of an animal in your house and you go home and worship it um, because I feel like that's kind of the definition of sinful idolatry. And so let's hope that that's not what you're doing. Uh, If it is, we can can talk later. Um, But but I I think that probably uh, we've moved 
kind of moved away from literally creating like an image or a statue of the God that we've set up to worship, but that doesn't make our idolatry any less real. We still do it. We still choose to worship something other than God, something that will just let us do things the way we want to do them. We just don't make a statue to it because, I mean, we got to do it low key. We can't be super obvious about the way we worship an idol, right? And so uh, literal idols, idolatry, uh, in the biblical definition of idolatry is devotion to the maid rather than the maker, that God is the maker of everything and everything, everything that's not God is something that God made. Uh, and so if you choose to worship something that's not God, you're worshiping something he made, but you're not worshiping the one who made it. Uh, and so you're devoting yourself to something made instead of to the one who made it. Uh, it violates the first commandment that God gave of, of the 10 commandments. Uh, it's kind of the primary reason for God's wrath. Uh, when we worship an idol, when we dedicate our life to something other than him, uh, it evokes a response from him. And so uh, Romans says people had knowledge about God, but they refused to acknowledge him as their God. They, they prided themselves on their own wisdom and they traded the glory of their creator for images they created. So God gave them over to their, their desire for sin. God reacts to our decision to turn away from him by letting us turn away from him. If you insist on worshiping something other than God, he won't stand in your way. God will let you choose who and what you will serve. And God will also let you experience the natural consequences of your own choices and actions. God will let you choose. And the second exchange that we read about is in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than their creator. So you might expect God to lash out at us when we, when we do that, when we exchange God's glory for something lesser, uh, when we exchange God's truth for, for some lie that we tell ourselves to excuse our, our sinful choices and our sinful actions. But, but God's reaction, God, God's wrath is expressed in, in giving us over to the consequences of our own desires. So throughout the Bible, idolatry and sexuality are linked together. Uh, most of the idol worship in the Old Testament uh, involved sex that was outside of God's design for creation. A lot of the, a lot of the idol worship in the Old Testament, you would go to a temple uh, of, of the, you know, whatever God it was that you, you hoped to worship, in particular the fertility gods that would uh, bless your crops. You would go to the temple um, and at the temple, uh, the, your worship of that God would involve uh, various sexual expression that is not endorsed in God's design for creation. We'll put it that way. Uh, and so throughout, throughout the Old Testament, idolatry and sexuality were, were linked together. And, uh, and so it makes sense that Paul would use sexuality as an example of what happens when God gives us over to the consequences of our own desires. And so Romans 1, 26 and 27, these two verses, uh, this is one of three specific references to homosexuality in the New Testament. And I have to be honest, I, I thought about skipping this section today. I did not want to, I don't want to preach this. I still don't want to preach this. I, I, even though I preach it in first service, I still don't want to preach this. I didn't want to preach this. But like I said earlier, we are people of the book. And, and if, if, if this is God's word, we are going to study it and we're going to deal with it. Um, but the reason I didn't want to preach this is because historically, Christians and the church, um, we have not done a very good job de dealing with this. We, we've not done a good job at all dealing with this. So first, let me, I want to be really clear that hatred and anger and homophobia 
and contempt are not godly responses to homosexuality. Those things are not okay for God's people. Not okay. Not godly responses. When when the church responds to people in those ways, we we are guilty of sinning against them. Throughout history, we have been guilty time and time and time again of sinning against the LGBTQ community and that has to stop. We have to knock it off. We We have to stop sinning against people and trying to play the role of judge and the role of God in their life. Secondly, sexual orientation does not define who a person is. That is not the core of their identity. And it does not affect God's love for them. Homosexuals matter to God. They matter to me. I don't think we hear that enough from from pastors and Christian leaders that that homosexuals, they matter to me. We've not always made that clear. And and as a representative of Christian leaders, I want to apologize. I am sorry that we have not been more clear that homosexuals matter to God. They matter to us. They matter to the church. So a biblical perspective on homosexuality has to start with God's design and creation for human sexuality and human relationship, which makes sense because that's what Paul's getting at in Romans 1. He's already referred back to creation, talking about uh, that, you know, idolatry, that we worship created things rather than the creator. He's already made reference to creation. And so looking back at creation, looking back in, in Genesis 2, God intentionally designs a partner for the man, for Adam, and the partner he designs is a woman. And so then God designed marriage as a, as a joining of that one man and one woman into one flesh. And so from this, I think we learn a few things. I'm going to put them all up on the, uh, on the screen right behind me all at the same time. From this, we learn a few things. We learn that God created sexual identity. Not an accident. We didn't invent it. This is a, you know, God, God's idea, not ours. God made it. Second, we learn that uh, in making it, in making sexual identity, he created humans male and female as complementary partners uh, to complement one another. He he made different genders. Uh, We also learn that God created sexual intimacy, uh, which is uh, different than than just sexual identity. Uh, It's a deep connection that's designed to be shared between one man and one woman. Uh, so sexual intimacy was part of God's design. It's not just, sex isn't just some casual thing that you just like enter in and out of and no big deal. It creates a deep and meaningful and lasting connection uh, with another person. And then finally, we learn that God intended for the expression of, of sexual intimacy to take place in a marriage relationship. So God created men, God created women, God created marriage so that th- their differences would complement each other in, in every way. And homosexual behavior departs from God's design by embracing a a same-sex preference for sexual intimacy. Rather than the design that God put in place that uh, that, that, uh, there'd be complementary differences, uh, it's a rejection of that design and embracing uh, sameness. I, I want a person who's just like me. I don't want God's design for me to go and be with a person who is different than me and complementary to me. Uh, it's seeking this sameness um, in, in our sexual uh, identity, our sexual relationships. And when Paul talks about uh, natural sexual relations and unnatural ones, the language he uses, uh, we're very quick to get offended. And we want to cancel Paul, right? We, we want to get offended. We, wanna, we assume that Paul is calling us or, or our gay friend or our gay family member, that, that he's calling us unnatural. And listen, that's not what Paul is saying. 
That's not what he means. The Bible views any departure from God's design as something that is outside of the will of God for our lives. Any departure from God's design is is something that's outside of God's will for your life. And yes, biblically, that includes homosexuality. Now, of course, that also includes adultery or sex before marriage or even pornography addiction or chemical addiction or anger that's out of control or gluttony. These things are all outside of the way God designed us to be. And so these are all, uh, these are all negative even Paul would even call them unnatural, right? Unnatural behaviors. Unnatural because they're not the way God intended for us, uh, our, for our nature to be. They're not within God's design for our lives, right? So homosexuality, it's not worse than other sexual sins. All sexual sin is outside of God's design for our sexuality. So the struggle for a person who's attracted to the members of the same sex is no different from the struggle of a person who's attracted to a chemical addiction or to anger or to gluttony. And when people give into that struggle, it's no worse than any other sin that we give into. The Bible does not, listen to this, the Bible does not condemn anyone for having a homosexual desire. Do you realize that? The Bible does not condemn anyone for dealing with a same-sex attraction. It, it just doesn't. Christians need to be more clear about this. Same-sex attraction is not sin. Homosexual desire is just like any other desire a person might have to do something that's outside of God's will. If you don't believe me, look at James. James says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. See, desire comes before sin. Those are not one and the same. If we indulge our desire, yes, it can lead us into sin. But the things we're attracted to, the things we desire, not not sinful. We don't choose what we're attracted to. We desire what we desire. We want what we want. But that doesn't mean that we get whatever we want. That doesn't mean that if God doesn't give us everything we want, that he's bad or mean or awful. There's lots of stuff that we want that God's like, well, that's not good for you. I'm not going to give that to you, right? The Bible's pretty clear about that. So even though we don't choose our desires, we do choose what to do with our desires. That's, that's where choice comes into this. I think one of the problems we've made as Christians throughout history is we're, we're, we're talking about choice in the wrong part of this, right? We don't choose what we want. We want what we want. We're attracted to what we're attracted to, but at some point there is a choice, isn't there? At some point, you are making a choice about what are you going to do with this desire you have? What are you going to do with this thing that you're attracted to that the Bible says is is not God's best for you? It's outside of God's design. So we choose whether to act on the desires we have. And that's Paul's point. That's Paul's point in Romans 1. He he uses homosexuality as an example, kind of his his main example, um, to illustrate this idea of, of exchanging something God designed for something we designed. When we turn from the glory and the truth of God to serve images of our own design, that's idolatry. And most of the time, the criteria we use to decide whether an action is wrong is whether it hurts anybody else. If it only affects me, it's not wrong, right? That's just my personal preference. That's just my choice. It doesn't hurt anybody, so it's not wrong. But listen, for a Christian, that's the wrong criteria, The question isn't whether you think your actions will hurt somebody else or not. The question is 
whether God has spoken about this issue. If God is your Lord, then God gets to decide what actions are right and wrong for you. If you insist on deciding for yourself and ignoring God's word, then you're not worshiping God anymore. You're worshiping you. You've set yourself up as the standard. You've set yourself up to decide what's right and wrong is based on what I think, whether I think it will hurt someone else or not, or whether I think, whether I think it's good for me or good for my friends, and, and, you, and you live that way. Well, fine, but don't pretend that you're worshiping God then. You're worshiping you. If you're gonna worship God, God gets to decide what's right and wrong. He decides the standard. God created us with the freedom to choose whether we're gonna worship him or whether we're gonna worship something else. But there are consequences to our choice. And Romans 1 teaches us that God is not gonna stand in the way of the consequences. If you wanna be your own God, he will let you. If you wanna chase after the things you desire, even if you know God wants something different for you, he will let you. So when we exchange the authentic God for a counterfeit idol, God gives us over to the things we desire. The consequence of God's wrath is that he stops intervening and he leaves us to our own devices. He, he, he lets us handle it ourselves. We expect like fire from heaven to come down and consume a, a rebellious and sinful society. But God's wrath plays out in simply letting us have our own way. In, in, parents, you ever done this with your kids? Like, you know it's bad for them. And it's not to mean like it's gonna like harm them like physically forever, but like, you know that's bad for them. You're like, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And then they, like, they realize that and they're all like, oh, that hurt, eh? <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't have done that. Maybe you should have listened to me. I, I see a little bit of God in that, right? He lets us have our own way. In Judges 10, 14, God says, go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Whoa, whoa. If you're gonna to choose to worship something other than God, God's like, okay, if that's really what you want, sin is its own punishment. When we settle for created things rather than the creator of everything, the thing we desire becomes the thing that imprisons us. And listen, our desires are never really fulfilled. Sin just leads to more sin. It's not like, okay, cool, I, you know, I did that thing. And now I'm good forever. Like sin leads to more and more sin. And, you know, Paul talks about it, verse 29 through 31, this rapid fire list of over 20 different consequences of indulging our desires. When we just, when God just leaves us to our own desires and we just go after what makes us happy, this is what we get. Wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, hating God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventing new ways to do evil, disobeying parents, abandoning understanding and loyalty and love and mercy. So not only does sin lead to more sin, but then in verse 32 at the very end, it says that sin also leads us to approve of sin in other people. They were like rooting for other people to sin. So we feel better about our own sin. And it's just, it's just this downward spiral of society where, uh, you know, I, I choose to do whatever I want. And then, man, that wasn't so good, but maybe I can make a better choice. And then this, you know, everyone else is like rooting me on. Like, yeah, you should do that. You should do whatever you want. You should live your truth. Ooh, did I hit too, too close to home? Sorry about that. See, our sinful desire never just affects us alone. They always eventually bleed out and, and, and they hurt the people around us. We try to justify our own sin and we celebrate sin in other people. That's how we act when we suppress the truth about God. And God gives us over to a depraved mind. God, God says, you wanna live your truth? Okay, 
It's really what you want. So why would God do this? How could he do it? How could, how could a good and loving God just abandon us like this and leave us to our own bad choices? Well, the good news is he doesn't. He, he doesn't abandon us. God, God lets us experience the consequences of our own idolatry so that we, we recognize our sin for what it is and we turn back and worship the creator. If you're listening to me, if you can hear my voice, you need to know it's not too late. It is not too late to turn back. God lets us experience the consequences of our own desires. If we want to choose sin, if we want to worship something that's not him, he lets us do it. Not because he hates us, not because he turns his back on us and he just throws his hands up in the air and gives up on us. It's because he wants us to understand the weight of our own sin and the result of of living the life that we choose. Like, man, that is not what I thought it was going to be. That is not what I wanted. That's That's not what I was after. And God says, I'm right here. I'm still here. You can still turn back. You can still choose me. He lets us experience the consequences of our own sinful choices so that we can choose him again. So we do, we have a choice to make. We live our way, we live God's way. That's the choice. I mean, we, we, we try to talk about it and make it complicated, right? But the choice is you worship God or you don't worship God. You worship God or you worship you. Because that's really what it comes down to. You worship God or you worship you. Joshua addressed the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They're about to claim the promised land. Uh, He put the choice right in front of them. He said, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, if you don't like this, if you you look at all these things in the Bible and you're like, man, I don't think I'm going to like living that way. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. In other words, you can, serve, you can serve the gods of your family history, your genealogy, the things that have defined your family generation after generation after generation. You can serve those things. You can give in to that. Or you know, the, the idea of the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. You can look around and you can, you can see what culture's doing. And you're like, man, I want a piece of that. My culture says this is right and, and we can live this way. And if, if this is what you want, you should go after it and everybody should live their truth and do their thing. That's what I want. And, and Joshua says, if that's what you want to choose, you can choose it. Choose, you can serve those gods, the, the gods of your family history. You can serve the gods of the culture around you. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. See, if you settle, if you settle for less than the living God, God won't stop you. God will give you what you settle for and all the consequences that come with it. But listen, it doesn't have to be that way. And, and if, you've, if you've been living that life where, where God's, God's, you feel like God's far from you and he's backed off from you and he's just let things happen to you, it, it doesn't have to stay that way. We can change course. We can stop settling. We can turn back. And communion, this time we do every week, is the perfect time to repent and return. You know, repent means that you're moving in this one direction away from God and you realize it, so you stop. And a lot of times that's, that, like, that's the end of it for us. We're like, oh man, I, I'm going to stop this behavior. Okay, cool, but you've been moving away from God all this time. That's, that's only half the deal. You know, stop the behavior and then repent means you stop and you turn around. You pull a 180 degree turn and then you keep moving. But you're going back this way. Back toward God. Repent and return. 
So each week we do this. Each week we take time in our service to, to remember the price that Jesus paid. The, the price he paid to throw the door to God wide open so, so we could always turn back to him. So repent, repenting could always happen so that we could always return. That's the other thing. It's not just like a one-time thing where you wake up one day, I'm like, oh man, I don't want to go this way anymore. I better turn back to God. And then it's all like, you know, Steve keeps saying, it's like up and to the right. It's, and it's all like smooth sailing back to God for the rest of your life. No, I got news for you. Repenting happens over and over and over and over again because we're, you know, not great at this game. Right? And so, and so you repent and you repent and you repent. And the thing is, because of Jesus, God, God's never like, nope, door's closed. It's done now. God's got the door open. You repent and you return over and over again. And so every week we take communion over and over again because we can repent and we can return. And whatever your sins are, whatever our individual sins are, whatever the desire, the desire is that you have that leads you away from things of God and toward things uh, that, that, that you want that are outside of God's design, whatever those sins are, they're all kind of like spokes, like on a bike wheel, and they connect to this single hub. And they all stem from the same thing. They all stem from demoting God and promoting me. They all stem from, I'm my own God, I will do what I want. And then all these things come from that. And so the solution is simple, but it's hard. You put God at the center instead of you. It's so simple, but man, it's so hard. You put God at the center and then you see what comes from God. You see all the things, all the spokes that stem from God and they're gonna be way different than the spokes that stem when you're in the middle. And so you repent and you return and you put God in the middle again. And so it's time to put God, it's, it's time to put him back at the center of your life. It's time to stop settling for less than what the creator has designed for us. So under your chair, there's this little, um, in youth ministry, we call it the snack pack, which is probably not great. But anyway, um, there's, this, there's this little uh, package of communion under your chair um, with the bread and the juice. So I'm going to pray um, and uh, give us a little time to reflect, and then we can take communion together. So uh, let's pray. God, this is um, easy, easy to say, but hard to live uh, because we want the things we want. And our desires, they are strong. And we are really good at justifying them and convincing ourselves that they are not bad. And so God, I just pray for us this week that you would make, you would make your standard, your design clear in our lives. And that we would choose and, and man, Lord, I just want to thank you that we can make that choice at all. Because it's only because of your son. It's only because of Jesus. And, and the, the, the fact that he, always, that he chose you consistently. And he went to the cross and he took all of, the, all of our sins, all of the results of us not choosing you. He said, I'll take that. And he put it to death. He buried it all so that the door can stay open. So God, I just pray that we would, we would choose to walk through that door, to return to you, to put you at the center. It's in Jesus' name. His body given for you. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Well, I hope we're still friends after that. I've been, I've been really nervous. Re I've been really nervous all week getting ready for this message because 
it is easy to, to run away with Romans chapter one. It's easy to make it say things that, that it doesn't say, that it's not really saying. And here's the bottom line. Serving anything less than God is a waste of your time. It's a waste of your energy. It's a waste of your devotion because only God has the power to save you from your sins. God is the only thing, the only one worthy of your worship. So don't settle. Don't settle for less than God. He's the only one worthy. Um, I hope you guys have a really great week. Um, Actually, uh, I'm on sabbatical starting tomorrow, so I hope you have a really great eight weeks. Um, And I'll see you guys in a while.